You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. But if you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to Mark's Gospel. The very end of Mark chapter 4 and then Mark chapter 5 is where we, uh, we find ourselves today. Last week, Uh, We joined with the other churches of the Liberty Network for uh, the annual Liberty Network Sunday. Uh, And you saw Pastor Steve Huber on the video screen behind me last week, the one time a year we do that. Uh, But today we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. And in this part of Mark's Gospel, uh, we're going to read in just a moment four accounts of Jesus' power. Four accounts of Jesus' power. And each one, listen for this as we read it, each account includes a display of sin's power to destroy a display of Jesus' infinitely greater power to restore, and then a response, or or responses to Jesus' power. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the, and the sea obey him? Chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces." No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, as the crowd that came to your disciples once said, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. And so we ask this morning by your Holy Spirit's power that you would now give us eyes to see Jesus, to see his glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus is the powerful one. That's what we see in this text. And these four accounts show us Jesus' power over nature, Jesus' power over demons, Jesus' power over disease, and Jesus' power over death. So we'll look a little bit at each of those things together with the rest of our time. So first, Jesus' power over nature. At the end of chapter 4 there, uh, Jesus and his disciples begin to cross the Sea of Galilee. So most of his ministry up to this point has been on the western shore of the sea. That's where Capernaum is. But now Jesus is crossing to the eastern shore and he's continuing his work there of proclaiming the kingdom of God, of calling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. During that crossing, which was typically about a two-hour journey, a great storm arises and we read there the disciples begin to panic. It's a big deal when these disciples begin to panic because half of these disciples are experienced fishermen. And this lake, the, the Sea of Galilee is really a large lake, is already famous, has always been famous for its intense storms. 
And so panic from fishermen, like at least half of these disciples, means, I mean, this storm is really something. To, panic, to cause them a panic is really something. Think hurricane force storm here. So the disciples wake Jesus up, and rather than trusting him, uh, rather than simply asking for his help, they go straight for accusation of his motives. Don't you care? Don't you care? We are perishing. We're about to die. Now, in the, in the church, at least in the American church, we have this really bad habit of overreading ourselves into certain passages of Scripture. So if you've ever heard a sermon on this text before, uh, it almost always leads to someone saying, we all have storms in our lives. Jesus is powerful over those storms. No matter what storm you're facing today, Jesus can calm it. And that's not altogether untrue. That there's actually a lot of truth in that. Jesus does have power over our circumstances, including the bad ones. But that's not the point of what's happening here in this text. This is about power. This is a confrontation between the power of nature and the power of God. In the ancient world, nature, and, and in particular, anything related to the sea, the ocean, that was the epitome of raw power, chaotic, untamed power. As we know, nature is unpredictable. When storms and natural disasters occur, they bring destruction very often. Now, in the centuries since this account, uh, meteorology, technology has improved vastly, but deep down, we still carry this very deep, innate sense and fear of nature. And when tornadoes and hurricanes and volcanic eruptions and earthquakes happen, is that not an immediate, very vivid reminder of how small, how helpless, how powerless you and I actually are? So here's the point of this text. Storms are a display of sin's destructive power. So without denying the science in any way, storms and natural disasters exist most fundamentally because when humanity rebelled against God, when sin entered the world, all of creation fractured. Creation itself groans under the weight of sin. Natural disasters and storms that wreak havoc on God's earth, they are evidence, they are a very tangible reminder that creation itself is eagerly awaiting the redemption of God. And so in this moment, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus offers to his disciples a glimpse of that very redemption. With a mere word, he says, peace, be still. He displays his infinitely greater power to restore what sin destroys. And the language here is really important. It says Jesus rebukes the wind. That's the same word that Mark uses throughout his gospel to describe uh, Jesus casting out demons. He rebukes the wind. And immediately we read, the wind ceases. There's, there's not even a struggle. Jesus speaks and the untamable, chaotic power of nature yields, submits. What's the response? The disciples, verse 41, are filled, it says, with great fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? As their fear of nature subsides because of what Jesus has just done, a new kind of fear emerges. If storms, in other words, are the epitome of raw, untamable power, and here's this, this man, here's Jesus, who tames it with a word, well, how much more powerful is Jesus? And how much more untamable is he? Any of us 
who are familiar with Jesus, who are familiar with his miracles, are prone to minimize his raw power. And with our nice, organized, compartmentalized Christian lives, we think that we've got Jesus figured out, tucked into the the religion department, as it were, of our lives. Like, Like an outlet, There's power there to to tap into, to plug into when we need it and in the things that we want it for, but just as easy to ignore or to neglect when we're not interested, when we don't want it. And that's really the danger of reading a text like this and asking first, well, what storm does Jesus need to calm in my life? An infinitely better question in light of this text is this. Where has your view of Jesus become too tame? Where has your view of Jesus become too tame? Where have you shrunk Jesus down to view him as a personal assistant, as a, as a genie who exercises power only in the ways we want him to when we want him to? Untamable nature obeys his simple word. Let that appropriately unnerve you. God alone is God. He will not be tamed. He will not be controlled by us or anything else. Nothing can stop or hinder him. Let that drive you to this kind of fear that the disciples experience where your only response can be, who is this? When we do that with honesty, when we do that with integrity, it will stir up hard questions. Namely, if Jesus has this untamable power, what will he do with it? What will he do with it? And it makes the disciples' accusatory question that much more important. Jesus, don't you care? And I'm convinced that's why this account of Jesus' power is immediately followed by three more accounts. Because in the three that follow, we are, we are shown by Mark not only the extent of Jesus' power, but also the intent of it, the purposes of his power and what he will use it for. So second, Let's observe Jesus' power over demons. After the the storm subsides, uh, Jesus and the disciples, they complete their crossing of the Sea of Galilee. And so the first half of chapter 5 there recounts what happens when they arrive on the eastern shore. Uh, Now, as opposed to the western shore, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly, primarily, uh, Gentile territory. Uh, Non-Jewish people lived there. And the Decapolis, which literally means ten cities, Uh, was this region that that was east of the Jordan River. And as we see in this text, as we read, it's an area that's characterized by a lot of spiritual darkness, by a lot of uncleanness. So a first century Jewish person hearing these words would, would hear this text and they'd think, okay, so there's a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs, because to touch a tomb or a dead person would also make you ceremonially unclean surrounded by people who are employed in unclean occupations with unclean animals like pigs, all in an unclean Gentile territory. One commentator summed it up by saying, this is a place where no one would want to go for any reason. And I think we kind of get that in the Harrisburg region, even the terminology of West Shore, East Shore. Like, do not the West Shore people feel of the East Shore and the East Shore people feel of the West Shore. That is a dark, unclean place where no one would want to go for any reason. But Jesus goes there, and and he immediately encounters this man possessed by a multitude of demons. In the Roman army, a legion was 6,000 men. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that there are 6,000 individual evil spirits in this man, but there are many. 
And using that name, Legion, even brings up the, the militant, violent, destructive nature of Satan and demons. What do Satan and demons use their power for? They use their power to distort and to destroy the image of God in man. To war against the dignity and the beauty of what humans are created to be. And that's why this man is constantly crying out in agony. He's cutting himself with stones, self-destructive. He's, he's being driven out of his mind, alienated from all of society around him. Demons have power. I mean, look what they have done to this image bearer of God. His life is in ruins. And verse 4, we read, no one has the strength to subdue him except Jesus. Again, with only his words, Jesus commands the demons to come out of him. And again, it's not even a contest. Even more incredible, the demons appeal not to their own power, but to God's. Did you hear that when we read it? I adjure you, they say to Jesus, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In other words, they're saying to Jesus, swear to God you won't torture me. It's a little ironic that demons would, ap would appeal to that. But in the moment of desperation, they appeal to the strongest power they know, which is not Satan. It's not Satan, it's God. Nothing, not even the demonic, the embodiment of evil, is a formidable opponent for the power of Jesus. And if we were to fast forward to the, to the end of the whole story, when Jesus comes again, the last battle, the battle that ends the war, it's not an epic battle. Jesus shows up, all that opposes him is destroyed, the end. Not even Peter Jackson can make a trilogy out of that. He couldn't, he'll try. I'm sure he'll try someday. I don't think he'll do very well at it. Okay, now what's the deal with these pigs? What about these pigs? Did that not like stand out a little bit? It's kind of an odd account in this story. 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. It's a lot of pigs. It's the livelihood of a lot of people. It's a financial catastrophe for whoever it is that owns these. Why does Jesus grant the demon's request to be sent into the pigs? For one, it shows how real and how powerful demons really are. It shows also their intent. If they're no longer permitted to destroy this man, they are going to destroy something. They are literally hell-bent on destroying God's creation. And I think that's why Jesus lets them do this. It becomes an unforgettable picture of what Satan and demons use their power to do. It also, by contrast, becomes an unforgettable picture of what Jesus uses his power to do, which is to rescue and restore and redeem people who are made in the image of God. It's not that animals and nature are unimportant. God's image bearers are actually called, at the very beginning of the Bible, to be faithful stewards of the earth and everything in it. But the value that God places on people is unparalleled in all of his creation. Crowned with some of his own glory and honor, Psalm 8 tells us, Jesus will trade all of the money, all of the livestock in the world to redeem the soul, to redeem the one life of a person made in his image. How do people respond to this display of Jesus' power? Well, the man himself wants to be with Jesus. It's a picture of discipleship. Restored by Jesus' power, he is there sitting in his right mind now at his feet. And Jesus then sends him as the first missionary to the Gentiles. In all of Jesus' gospel accounts, this is the first missionary to the Gentiles. 
So years before the Apostle Paul, who we know is the missionary to the Gentiles, there's this formerly demon-possessed man from the Decapolis. Often, we read in the Gospel accounts, Jesus requires people not to reveal his identity, not to reveal his miracles. But in this predominantly Gentile territory, where there would not be the same false messianic expectations, he explicitly tells this man, you go and do share it. You go share it with your friends and family. Tell them about the mercy of God in your life. But how do the people of this region respond? It's tragic. Like the disciples... They fear the raw power of Jesus. They're afraid. But unlike the disciples in the boat during the storm, rather than letting the fear drive them to Jesus, to to follow him, to go with him, they drive Jesus away. They beg Jesus to depart. In other words, having now observed the results of both demonic power and the results of Jesus' power, they are more content, they are more comfortable with the presence of demons than they are with the presence of Jesus. What an indictment. What an indictment. But is it not the same indictment that applies to us in our lives? Are we not in our lives prone to prefer the corrupting, destructive powers that we're familiar with to the untamable, transforming power of Jesus? commentator named James Edwards puts it like this. He says, most people, if they were asked, would probably say that they would like to see a manifestation of God. Like, wouldn't we want to see a manifestation of God's power in this kind of way? But he goes on to say, this story is a cold shower for such religious pipe dreams. Great line. When God, he goes on to say, when God manifests himself in Jesus, most people ask him to leave. For you, it may not be an accommodation of demonic power. Maybe it's an accommodation of some sin, some addiction. Maybe it's an accommodation of this world as it sets itself up in opposition to God. Maybe it's the allure of political power or the power that wealth promises. It could be any number of things. There will be moments in our lives when the power of Jesus confronts these lesser destructive powers. Moments where we see that the, with, with, a, with a crazy kind of clarity, the extent of Jesus' power is infinitely greater, the intent of Jesus' power is infinitely better. But we will still, in those moments, have to choose how to respond. Will we accommodate the destructive powers? Will we let them stay with us because at least they're familiar and at least we're comfortable with them? Or will we choose the untamable power of Jesus? who will no doubt in in multiple ways reorient our lives and turn our worlds upside down? Will we go with Jesus or will we beg Jesus to go? Third, we see Jesus' power over disease. Over disease. Back to the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, verse 21, the synagogue ruler named Jairus comes to Jesus And we read there, his daughter is near death and he's pleading with Jesus to come to his house and to heal her. So they set out together toward Jairus' house. But while they're en route, verse 25, there's an interruption. An interruption that actually is no interruption at all. While a great crowd presses around Jesus and Jairus and the disciples, a woman finds a way to touch him. And as in these other accounts, we learn from her life the destruction and the havoc that the effects of sin wreak in real people. Just like natural disasters, disease, 
the decay of our bodies. This is most fundamentally caused by the corruption of sin. And this woman, for 12 years, has suffered physically and emotionally and spiritually. Not only has she been hemorrhaging and spent all of her money only to get worse, but the ceremonial uncleanness of this condition would bring with it an ostracism from the people of God, and it would bring a massive amount of shame into her life. She touches Jesus, and immediately, immediately she's healed. In a moment, Jesus reverses and restores what 12 years of treatments and all the money she had could not do. And that could very well be the end of this encounter. That could be it. But perceiving that power has gone out from him, Jesus stops in that moment and he asks, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples think he's crazy. Like, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're in a crowd. Everybody has touched you. Everybody's touched you. But here's the thing. At this moment, this woman is only partially healed. She's been healed physically, but spiritually, she's still dead. In fact, her desire to touch Jesus' garments, it's part sincere faith, and it's part superstitious magic, as if the garments of a miracle man had power in and of themselves to do anything. And so we see over and again in the gospel accounts, Jesus is no mere spectacle, no mere miracle worker. He refuses to let people perceive him that way. And for this woman to be fully healed, spiritually healed as well, she doesn't need contact with Jesus' garments. What she needs is an encounter with Jesus himself. To see his face, to hear his voice say to her, daughter, restored child of God, no longer ostracized, no longer ridden with shame, daughter, it's your faith that's made you well. Not some kind of magic in my clothes, but me. It's faith in me that has made you well. Jesus never uses his power for neat tricks. He uses it to restore people to wholeness, to restore people to himself, to, to re reconcile the relationship with God that we have been created for. His power is raw and untamable, but we trust him because with all of that power, this is what he does. This is what he uses it for. Let's be real about this, though. Let's be honest about this. It doesn't always seem or feel that way, does it? So often, it's difficult to trust that Jesus is and will use his power for our good. Sometimes it's just outright impossible to see how that could possibly be the case in the circumstances we're facing. And I have no simple answers for you this morning. But sitting in this text, I've become so grateful for how the healing of this woman is nested within this other account about Jairus and his daughter. And so forth and finally, come with me into this, Jesus' power over death. As Jesus is healing this woman, as he's displaying his power in the life of this woman, what must the disciples be thinking? Even more, what must Jairus be thinking? Remember, this is happening on the way to his house. His daughter is near death. It's urgent. There's no time to figure out who touched Jesus, let alone to stop this whole procession so he can spend some time talking with her. 
Some of you in this room work in emergency medicine. Jesus' actions here violate like every triage protocol we've ever heard of. You're always supposed to deal with the most urgent, the most life-threatening things first, and then only once those are stable, once those things have been handled or managed in some way, then you move on to the rest. And Jairus' daughter is on her deathbed. She's dying. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Could she not wait another day? Could she not wait even a couple more hours? Again, we see Jesus' power is unmanageable, untamable, and he does not always employ it in ways that, that we would, in ways that make sense to us. And in Jesus' encounter with Jairus and his daughter, we are meant to learn, we are meant to see that real faith, real trust in Jesus is forged most powerfully is forged in those moments when Jesus does what we don't think, what we think he shouldn't. When Jesus does what we, what we think he should not. When he does the opposite. It's actually, if we step back, relatively easy to trust Jesus when he does what you and I would do. What we think he should do. Faith trusts Jesus when he doesn't. It's in those moments when he refuses to bend to our will, that's when we're required to bend, to submit, to trust his will. And if we look at this this encounter, even the very beginning of it, Jairus already has some measure of faith. When we meet him, we don't know anything about him but this. He has some measure of faith. He comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he asks him to heal his daughter. So at a minimum... He believes that Jesus has the power to heal. And how thrilled he must be when when Jesus agrees and starts heading to his house with him. But what if Jesus is going to ask more than that? For not only faith that he can heal, but faith that he can raise from the dead. Jairus is actually going to be asked to trust in Jesus' power, not over disease, but over death itself. And as Jesus is sending this this healed woman away in peace, the the worst news possible comes. Their worst fear for Jairus, for the disciples, is realized. During this interruption, his daughter has died. And so it's too late. It's too late now. And as a father, I cannot imagine the agony and then the anger that I would experience in this moment. But it is the very moment when Jesus holds out an invitation to real faith, real faith in the real power of the real Jesus, he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. In other words, Jairus, I know this didn't go the way you wanted it to. I know your worst fear just happened. I know I didn't answer your request. You came to me in faith. I didn't answer your request. Will you trust me? Will you go with me? Or like the people from the region from which I just came, will you also ask me to go? Have you experienced this in your life? Some of you are in the absolute thick of this right now, where you've received terrible news, where Jesus isn't showing up and acting the way that you want him to. And you've come to him even in faith and you've asked him to work and you believe that he can because he's Jesus, but he's not. And there's no good explanation for why. We don't know how that's going to turn out in your life, in your situation. I can't promise you a happy resolution like Jairus gets with his daughter here. 
And in some ways, that's actually the point, to trust when we don't know the end of that story. Because what we do know is that these are the very moments in our lives where the invitation is held out to us to be people of real faith. You heard the end of this story, which in its context, this is Mark's exclamation point on these four accounts of Jesus' power. So Jesus is not only powerful over nature, over demons, and over disease, he's powerful over death itself. The last enemy, as the Apostle Paul will later call it. It's the ultimate example of how sin has fractured and corrupted creation. It's the ultimate example of how things are not the way they're meant to be. And with merely, again, his words, Jesus overpowers death. Talitha, this Aramaic word he uses there, it's a pet name. It's a term of endearment. It's akin to what we would say to a little child, sweetie or honey. And Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus is facing death, the most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race. And such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up through it. Honey, get up. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Now, does that not completely reframe death for those of us who are held by Jesus? And that's what we're meant to see in all of these accounts together. Let nature and Satan and disease and even death do their worst because they are nothing compared to the power of Jesus. But to see this unbelievable display of Jesus' power, it cost Jairus. It cost the disciples. What did it cost them? It cost them their control. It cost them their autonomy. It cost them the far more comfortable perception that Jesus exists primarily to exercise power how I want him to, rather than to truly follow him and believe in him. And Mark, of course, is racing us to the cross, where Jesus will once for all accomplish our salvation. And rising from the dead will prove his power is infinitely superior to every other power. At the cross is where we see most clearly not only the extent of Jesus' power, but the intent. Superior to every other power, Jesus leverages all of his power for our salvation. He leverages all his power in love to reclaim and to restore and to redeem all that these usurping counterfeit powers seek to destroy. So regardless of what happens in your life, regardless of whether your requests are answered, or even if Jesus never does what you think he should and what you want him to do, may you see in his own death and resurrection the eternal declaration that his power really is good and it's for your good, your hope, your life, that he will use his power. He will, as the prophet Isaiah says, exalt himself to show you mercy. And if today Jesus has become too tame to you, if you've confined Jesus to a compartment in your life, if you've decided to trust him only when he acts the way that you want him to, then may these accounts from the Gospel of Mark wake you up. Let it wake us up. Get a little freaked out at the thought of the untamed power of Jesus. Be driven to those hard questions about the intent of Jesus' power. And just to encourage you in that, those questions mean you're actually paying attention. They mean you're actually paying attention, that you haven't been lulled to sleep by a small Jesus of your own creation. 
One that fits nicely into your life rather than one that calls you out of that and into his own. Let us see the real extent of Jesus' power and let us see the real intent. May it lead us to trust him, especially when he doesn't do what we think he should. And in spite of the unanswered and in spite of the unknowns, because he will leverage all his power for your salvation, may you always choose to go with Jesus rather than asking Jesus to go. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, to whom shall we go? You are the powerful one. You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us strength to live out the message that we have heard today. Give us strength. Give us the faith that we need to live this out. And we pray that through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.